please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16, I'm not going to give you much by way of introduction because we have a lot of text to cover, but if you've been tracking with us, David's life at this point seems much like a soap opera. And so each week, I'm sure many of you are like, what is going to happen next in David's life? And I hope you've been keeping up, but just to give you some of the context as we look at chapter 16, beginning of verse 15, we find David here fleeing from Absalom with his family and a cohort of his mighty men. So David is surrounded by his closest fighting men and he is fleeing from Jerusalem. He has escaped through the Kidron Valley and has descended from Jerusalem down to the Jordan where he is weary. And the author now leaves David there and turns his attention some 25 or so miles back up the mountain range to Jerusalem where Absalom and Ahithophel walk into Jerusalem. So, if you're there, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 16 beginning in verse 15. And I want you to see first the arrival of God's enemies and David's friend. This is how the text begins there in verses 15 through 19. It says, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so will I serve you. All right, now there are three main characters here that take up the bulk of this narrative. They are, of course, Absalom, the recently crowned king at Hebron, David's rebel son, Ahithophel, one of David's closest and longest standing allies and advisors, and Hushai the archite, who is called David's friend. Now, I call this section the arrival of God's enemies for a very basic but biblical reason. Absalom and Ahithophel are not simply people who have chosen to root for a different team or have chosen to root for a different political party. No, this is not a democracy. They have intentionally rebelled against God's chosen king. And to rebel against David as king is to rebel against God himself in this particular context. Absalom and Ahithophel have no defensible or justifiable right to do what they've chosen to do. No more than Adam and Eve had a right to disobey God concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, because sometimes we can just go, well, Ahithophel and Absalom didn't like the political party of the day. This is David, God's chosen king. David, however imperfect, is still God's appointed king in Israel. And this makes Absalom and Ahithophel the Judas 
Iscariots of their day. In fact, David pins Psalm 41 about Ahithophel's betrayal. He says in Psalm 41, verses 7 through 9, he says, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. And this is what he says about Ahithophel. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now what you need to note is that Jesus quotes this same psalm against Judas at the Last Supper. But even in this rebellion, God is still working all things towards his appointed ends. So here we have God's enemies strolling into Jerusalem. But we also have David's friend, Hushai. And Hushai has been sent with a mission from David to overthrow the council of Ahithophel. You have to remember, David prayed as he left Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives for God to overthrow Ahithophel's council. And he lifts up his eyes and Hushai is there and is the next person David meets on the road. So verses 15 through 19 here explain how Hushai ends up in a position to answer David's prayer and accomplish God's purpose of overthrowing Absalom. And this is how it unfolds if you read the text carefully right there. Hushai arrives in Jerusalem at just the same time that Absalom and Ahithophel are entering. And Hushai immediately addresses Absalom with the exclamation we've heard all of our childhoods from cartoon characters. Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom knows Hushai. And he knows Hushai's relationship to David. And he's reasonably suspicious. He presses Hushai about his loyalty to David. His, the word there is hesed. His covenant faithfulness to David. Is this how you show your covenant faithfulness to David? Why didn't you go with your friend? And Hushai, Hushai responds that he will only serve the one whom the Lord and Israel have chosen. And Absalom in his pride thinks that Hushai can only be speaking about Absalom. The problem is that Hushai here is the master of doublespeak. Double entendre, if you've never heard of it. In fact, every word that Hushai speaks is true of David. Not necessarily true of Absalom. Absalom, in this case, acts just like Haman in the story of Esther, who assumes that King Ahasuerus would only want to exalt um, Haman, but in fact, the king there really wanted to exalt Mordecai, Haman's arch enemy. What Absalom hears in this is that Hushai will serve Absalom because he's king. What Hushai means is that he will only serve David because David is king. So that is the, that is the arrival of God's enemies and David's friend. Notice, secondly, the unknowing fulfillment of God's word. Look there now at verses 20 through 22 as the story continues. It says, Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all the men who are with you 
will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubine in the sight of all Israel. Now, you luckily didn't have to have me preach this last week on Father's Day. Skip this part. But here we are. If this was happening in modern day times, the, there would be drones and helicopters in the air. They would be watching the roof like hawks. There would, they would know, everyone in Israel knows what's happening on the palace's roof. Everyone does. So the scene shifts back here to Absalom and Ahithophel who can't believe their luck, right? They've taken Jerusalem, assumed the throne, and one of David's closest friends and confidants, Hushai, has seemingly switched allegiances. Now it's time to consolidate power and seal the deal by becoming king of all Israel. So Ahithophel gives Absalom a plan. He, a, a, he, he's going to do this, right? So uh, Ahithophel tells Absalom to do this to strengthen the morale of his men and to demonstrate to all Israel that Absalom is willing to see this thing through to the end. For those that are history buffs, this is Absalom's crossing the Tiber moment. There is no turning back once you pitch this tent on the roof. There is no future reconciliation that can be conceived of. He must prove, Absalom must prove to all Israel that he had the gumption and gall to do what Ahithophel had, had advised. Now, according to historians, there is some record of harems, the concubines, there is some record of harems in other kingdoms in the Near East passing down from one king to the next. That when you assume the throne, you get the keys to the harem. That basically the harem was royal property that passed down to whomever sat on the throne. But most likely in all of these situations, it was most likely just a formality and a paper transaction. They didn't really intend for those, those, uh, those people to become the wives of the next king. But while that might be true in other ancient Near Eastern uh, kingdoms, this is Israel. And in Israel, God's law is the law of Israel. So Ahithophel here, you need to know, advises Absalom here to do what is simultaneously, pay attention, Ahithophel tells Absalom to do what is simultaneously against God's law and a direct fulfillment of God's intended purposes. Let me explain. First, what Absalom does here is a capital offense worthy of death. Leviticus 20.11 says this, If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. That's, that's the law of the land. By this act, Absalom again disobeys God's law and brings condemnation on himself. Ahithophel proves here that though he is a very practical man and an excellent political and military advisor, he is no theologian. This act is forbidden by God, but at the same time, it is part of God's purposeful discipline against David. The writer states in verse 22, look there, that Absalom did this in the sight of all Israel. Now that phrase should ring a bell. I've quoted it ten times. If you were to go back, this is precisely what God had said to David in 2 Samuel 12 after, David and, after the issue with Uriah and Bathsheba. God said there, 
It says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now, Absalom does not know that. Ahithophel does not know that. The point here is Absalom unknowingly disobeys God's word from Leviticus and fulfills God's word from 2 Samuel 12 at the very same time. Now, does that bother you? You can go home and think about that the rest of the afternoon. I would say don't let that bother you. That's how God's providence frequently works. For example, God's revealed will is that murder is wrong and evil. The Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not murder. And yet God ordained that his own son would be murdered so that we would be saved. Judas does what is evil and wicked and only serves to do God's will. You see, God is free to use those who willfully break his law to unknowingly fulfill his purposes. Listen, man's intentions and God's intentions may not be the same in any moment, but God's purposes always prevail. And I want to say that is why you can have incredible hope in this life. Because there are those that will betray you and commit evil and commit unrighteousness and they will do wickedness. But in the end, even those acts must only serve, must only serve God's sovereign purposes. So you see here the unknowing fulfillment of God's word. Ahithophel and Absalom have no clue that they're doing simultaneously what God has forbidden and what God has ordained at the same time. Number three. Notice the hidden providence of God. Now let's pick up in chapter in, uh, in verse 23 at the rest of the story. He says there, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men. And I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with me will flee. All the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man. And all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. As soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, 
Whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as, a, as sand by the sea for multitude and that you go out to the battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Wow. Wow, what a story. Now that Absalom has done the deed, Ahithophel is pressing the agenda ahead, and now that, and now that Hushai is in the good graces of Absalom, it's time for their confrontation. I mean, this is like a movie. As usual, Ahithophel has a well-planned course of action. It's simple and effective. His outline is easy to follow. First, I'll choose 12,000 men, pursue David immediately while he's exhausted and weary. The overwhelming force will cause everyone to flee, and only David needs to die. Remember, David has 600 people. He says, I've got 12,000. Do some math. 20 to 1. Overwhelming force. He says, only David needs to die. And he says, Absalom, this will win the hearts of the people who will return to you as a bride coming home to her husband. What a beautiful picture. You can hear in this council the same wisdom that had made David a very successful military man. And you can hear in this same council the same wisdom that allowed Absalom to steal the hearts of all Israel. The advice seemed right to Absalom and to the elders Listen, Ahithophel didn't rise to his position by being an idiot. He was wise, practical, and effective. That's why David prayed that his counsel would be defeated. But for some reason, we might call it pride, Abs uh, Absalom wanted a second opinion. You know, Absalom may have thought that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So he calls for Hushai to give his opinion. Not only does he ask for Hushai's advice, notice in the text that he divulges Ahithophel's plan. The text says in verse 6, thus has Ahithophel spoken. So now Hushai knows exactly what he's up against in, in this uh, recommendation. So he measures his response by appealing to history, appealing to logic, appealing to caution, and appealing to Absalom's pride. Notice it. First, he appeals wisely to Ahithophel's historical reputation. Ahithophel is rarely, if ever, wrong. And what, so what does uh, Hushai say? This time, Ahithophel's advice is not good. This one time. Just this once, he's not giving you the best advice. Ahithophel is simply miscalculated. Everybody can be wrong every now and then. Hushai wisely does not overstate his case. He doesn't say Ahithophel's an idiot. He just says this one time, 
he's off. Second, he appeals to logic concerning David as a wily and seasoned veteran, right? He's a wily and seasoned veteran. He says, 12,000 men won't do you any good if you can't find him. After all, Saul hunted him for years and never found him once. You think 12,000 men are going to find him? He's already hidden himself in some cave somewhere. Third, he appeals to caution. He says, David's men are not as weary as they are enraged, like a, like a bear robbed of her cubs. If you think you can only kill David with no further bloodshed, you're wrong, Absalom. Many of your men will die. And when they do, when they do, this will splinter whatever support you have left. And the headline in the Jerusalem Post tomorrow morning will read something like this. Dumb teenage son learns what old man strength means. Amen. That's what you're going to learn. Some of you, my, my, my boy Jake learns this all the time. He wants to come in and mess with me. And I'm like, son, I might be old, but I'm much stronger than you. And that's the point. That's what's going to happen here. That's what's going to happen. All right? Finally, he appeals to Absalom's pride. Notice what he says. He says, Hushai's plan, Hushai's plan is to gather an immense army. That's what Hushai says. He says, a better plan is not 12,000 men. Let's gather the entire force of Israel, and let's have Absalom himself in person lead the battle out so that you get all the glory. Not a hit the fell, you need the glory. And he says, why just take out David when you can crush the entire resistance at once and forever be done with rebels? So without saying it directly, Hushai is pointing out that Ahithophel's plan is really about Ahithophel's glory. Just look at all of the I wills in Ahithophel's plan. He says, I will gather 12,000 men. He says, I will arise and pursue David. I will bring back the people. Listen, Ahithophel knew how to speak for victory. The problem is he didn't know how to talk to a narcissist. That's what Hushai knew how to do. And now look at the decision in verse 14. It says that all the men of Israel said that the counsel of Hushai is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. But there's, but there's a real reason. Look at the end of the verse that I didn't read. Look why this happened this way. It says, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. The good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And there you have it. Ahithophel's counsel is right, wise, and good if you want to win this rebellion. And yet God ordained that it would be defeated for the purpose of bringing his judgment on Absalom. Because Absalom is not God's chosen king. David is. And that is the issue behind the whole text. So right there you have the hidden providence of God. Hushai's counsel is better. But in God's eyes, who actually had the best counsel? You better believe it was Ahithophel. Had Ahithophel's counsel been followed, David would have been toast. And now let's look at the practical providence of God. Verses 17 through 29. Let's wrap this up here. He said this is the practical, that was the hidden providence of God, that God ordained it to happen. And then this is the practical providence of God, verses 14 and following. And so, sorry, verses 15 and following. 
It says, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means passed over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Remember, Hushai doesn't know which advice he's going to really take. So David needs to get out of Dodge. Okay? He says, Now Jonathan and Ahimehaz were waiting at En-Rogel, and a female servant was to go and tell them, for they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Behurim, who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into the well. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain over, over it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when, they have, and when they sought them, they could not find them. And when they sought them and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And after they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. And David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed by the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own home city. That was Gilo. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab, and Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. And when David entered Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. They brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Okay, let me wrap this up. There are two main scenes here. And let's look at the first one there in verses 15 through 22. The first scene, uh, the first scene explains how David gets Hushai's word, right? How, David, how the news from Hushai gets through David's intelligence network that he left back in Jerusalem. What good is Hushai's counsel if David doesn't get it? So Hushai sends word through Zadok and Abiathar, through a young servant girl who's supposed to take the word to their sons, Jonathan and Ahimehaz. Now she is much, like, much less likely to be followed than them, but just like the spy movies, you can see this scene, Absalom also has people watching the streets. He also has an intelligence network, and they're spotted, and the chase is on. But a sympathetic family with a well in their courtyard will do. Right? Just a little canvas, a little dust, a little spilt grain, a little spread grain, and no one is the wiser. And when Absalom forces come knocking, she simply tells them she doesn't know where the traitors are. I mean, they must have crossed the river. 
That's because the men she's hiding are not traitors at all. And this is war. Now that is practical providence, if there ever is such a thing. No lights, no magic, no miracles, no lightning bolts. Just simple, everyday, practical providence. God using ordinary means to accomplish His ordained purposes. Just a well with some grain. They'll be fine. And then the author pauses, if you noticed in the middle, to give us Ahithophel's obituary. It says that he goes out, sets his house in order, and hangs himself. Now, Ahithophel is just as calculating and efficient in his death as he had been in his life. Now, you have two options here. You can believe that Ahithophel chose to do this first because he had hoped to be the power behind the throne um, in Absalom's new regime, but when Hushai stole the show, he chose this path instead of the shame of being replaced. Now, that would make Ahithophel a very prideful, exceptionally prideful man. He'd rather die than give his job to somebody else. The second option, though, the one I opt for, is that Ahithophel saw the writing on the wall. Ahithophel knew that as soon as Absalom chose Hushai's advice, then David would have time to rest, time to recover, time to recoup his forces, and it would only be a matter of days before David would walk back into Jerusalem and put all the traitors to death. So Ahithophel chose this exit as opposed to facing down David. Again, Ahithophel is the wisest counselor in the land, and he can see the end of this as clear as the moon on a cloudless night. But now let's look at the second scene from God's practical providence. The, God, the author basically ends by telling us about Absalom gathering the army and going out to war and David meeting some motley crew of people in Mahanaim, which was um, Ishbosheth's old capital. And that's about 30 miles east of Jerusalem. But I want you to look at that motley crew of people that greet David there. You have Ammonites, Benjamites, and Gileadites. Not exactly... Israel's best, right? Not exactly those who have been necessarily sympathetic to David. After all, David tried to kill all the Ammonites, the Benjamites hate him, and he had driven out most of the Gileadites. But just as David has his enemies, he also has his loyal friends. These may not be Israel's finest at David's back, but they are nonetheless more on God's side of the battle than any of the men of Israel who sided with Absalom. Because again, this is the whole issue. David is still God's appointed king. And all these men gathered here around David know it. They risk their lives. They risk their families' lives. They risk their land by giving aid to David. But they would choose rather to obey God than to disobey him. They bring whatever they have to come to the aid of God's king because they have no other choice. Let me tell you a story I read this week about another general who didn't have a choice to abandon his post. Listen to this story. It says, during the war with Mexico and the assault on Chapultepec, it's a hard word to say, Chapultepec, a battery under the command of, of Lieutenant Thomas J. Jackson, also known as Stonewall Jackson, he came under punishing fire. Some of the horses were killed. And the gunners around him deserted their guns to find shelter behind an embankment. 
But Lieutenant Jackson remained at the guns, urging his men to come back and fight. Years later, he was teaching at the Lexington Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia, uh, the, in the Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia, and they inquired about this episode. They asked him about this battle, and one of them astonishingly asked, Major, why didn't you run when your command was so disabled? And Stonewall Jackson quietly responded, I was not ordered to do so. If I had been ordered to run, I would have done so. But I was directed to hold my position, and I had no right to abandon it. No one in Israel has the right to abandon their post to David. Not a one of them. And that's what you see here with these at the end. So too would be the response of these men in 2 Samuel with asked, why didn't they side with Absalom? Because I've not been ordered to by my real king, the God of Israel. So at the end of all things, as I conclude, at the end of all things, I always like to point you how this, how this is all a picture of Christ's coming kingdom. God will always have his enemies. Jesus will always have his enemies. But he will also always have those that loyally follow him. At the end of all things, Christ's enemies will find themselves on the wrong side of history, as some like to say. That's what's going to happen to Absalom and his forces. They may plot and plan and scheme and devise and manipulate, but their plans will only serve to accomplish God's purposes. Whether that be Joseph's own brothers, who sinfully sold him, sold him into Egypt and sought to destroy him, or whether that be Pharaoh, who sought to enslave God's people, or Balaam, who sought to curse God's people, or Goliath the Philistine, who sought to subjugate and destroy God's people, or Absalom and Ahithophel, who sought to rule God's people, or Judas, who traded his allegiance to Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Ultimately, re the reason we have hope is because even Satan's best attempts at espionage will only strengthen and secure God's people. That is the gospel hope that we have. That over all of our lives, and over all of our sin, and over all of our bad choices, God will write what others, and even yourself, have meant for evil. God has meant for good for the saving of lives. That is the hope we have in Jesus. That there is forgiveness full and free for those that repent of their sins and choose not to rebel against God's King, but humbly submit to Him as Lord. Would you pray with me, Father? We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. And this morning, Father, if there's anyone here who does not know the hope of the gospel, who does not know what it's like to lay down their arms and lay down their rebellion like Absalom, to lay down their shaking of their fist at God and their, in, their, their incipient desire to rule themselves and be the captain of their own souls. Father, I pray today they would find rest and comfort in repentance by coming to Jesus. Father, for others who need a church home, Father, we pray that today would be the day you stir their hearts and they would come and follow Christ here and put down roots and be a part of our family. Father, for others who are struggling with a call to ministry or a call to missions, Father, that you would speak to them and they would say, if no one else goes with me, I will follow King Jesus. That I will not sell out my allegiance for comfort or for my own plans or for my own desires, but I will walk with Christ. Father, do your work in our, in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name.